Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for CEO Exclusive, brought to you by Anona Enterprises. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to CEO Exclusive, where we get emerging trends from CEOs and their most trusted advisors. I'm really delighted to have on today's show Mike Potts and David Koshera, who were recently acquired, their company is recently acquired by Cisco. Um, Mike was the CEO, David was the COO, and their titles have changed a little bit, but we're going to focus on internet security and the international state of cyber on today's show. And I'm very delighted to have them on the show because this is such an important topic. Wonderful to have you here, gentlemen. Great to be here, Celine. Thank you. So I always start the show off by asking guests what the trends are in their industry or area of expertise that they think CEOs in the middle market need to know. So I'll toss that over to you to tell us a little bit about what do you think middle market CEOs need to know about um, the state of cyber, internet security, potential threats, things like that. That's a loaded question, Sini. We'll try to give you a twofold answer together. But our industry is a dynamic industry. Cyber is constantly evolving. Uh, the threat landscape uh, constantly changes. And the one thing that's for certain is that there's no silver bullet. There's no one company that is able to solve all the problems. Thus, it leads to ecosystem partnerships, partnerships such as the one that we uh, developed with Cisco. Um, and I only see the, the situation getting much worse. Uh, it used to be that uh, the adversaries were after credit card data, financial information, and they're still after that. But uh, it's evolved to uh, a point of... Uh, of intelligence gathering much beyond that, such as what happened with some of these latest breaches where personal information was stolen that has a much longer shelf life than a credit card. Credit card uh, theft shows up pretty quickly, but when somebody uh, steals your social security number and healthcare records, that doesn't show up for quite some time. And we're starting to see the leading edge of high-scale ransoms, and a lot of it goes unreported. If you think about it, an executive that has an ailment that uh, he or she doesn't want publicize is willing to pay a pretty significant sum to somebody holding them hostage. David, you may have some other thoughts too. No, I think it's important to note that, um, you know, cybersecurity has uh, really become big business. There are a number of different players involved. You mean like organized crime? Correct. Mm -hmm. So there's a number of players involved, both from the acquisition of data to the transfer of data to then the the malicious use of that data. And as a result of that, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar industry has been formed and, as, you know, when that happens, everybody wants a piece of that, at least the people who want to be on the bad side. So adversaries um, for, you know, for enterprises, the adversaries are constantly innovating. They're very innovative in thinking about new ways to attract uh, individuals to give them that data, to, to, make, to cause breaches, to go ahead and steal that data. And as a result, being in the cybersecurity industry, the companies that are trying to help uh, uh, individuals and help uh, other enterprises solve these problems have to be just as innovative. So it's a very, um, I call it a vicious cycle, but it's really the circle of, can we stop you? Yeah, we can stop you now, but you're going to find a new way and we got to find a new way. So you're constantly in this this circle uh, called the the gerbil wheel, if you will, right? You're, You're going around and around chasing each other, trying to figure out how to stop this. Um, one of the things that we have also seen as a trend is uh, the proliferation of education. So companies, uh, both enterprises as well as cybersecurity companies, are constantly trying to educate their employees, their customers, their partners on uh, what to be on the lookout for. You know, how do how do you tell your how do you tell your um, your non-sophisticated customer at home? to not click on an email that looks like it came from your bank. 
So you, you see a lot of financial institutions trying to trying to teach their customers about phishing. Uh, you see a lot of enterprises trying to talk to their employees about phishing, about know know who you're talking to, and 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 really pushing the education because at the end of the day, while technology plays a big part in this, uh, individuals do just as much. So let's unpack this a little bit. One thing that a middle market CEO could say, well, you know, Sony's had a problem, Target's had a problem, some banks have had a problem, Home Depot's had a problem. I'm a little, I'm a little company. Nobody's going to care about me and my security. You know, I'm going to fly under the radar. Is there really a threat in terms of internet security for smaller mid-market companies? Yeah, so I have a, um, I won't mention any names, but I have a, a good friend who works for a small to mid-sized company here in the Atlanta area. And just about three or four weeks ago, he told me a story about um, fraud or, sorry, cybercrime that had been committed at his small company. We're talking about about a $50 million revenue company. Mm-hmm. Turns out the CFO was on vacation, had likely posted on Facebook that they were on vacation. And during that time, somebody sent the accounting manager emails saying, this is from the CFO, and I need you to wire some money to this vendor. And it's, it looked legitimate, and I can vouch for that because every week I probably get two or three emails from Mike Potts uh, that have Mike Potts' picture from our Outlook <laughs> directory and, and looks just like Mike. It sounds like it's coming from Mike with the exception of Mike wouldn't ask me to send him a wire. He would come down to my office and, and do it directly. He wouldn't mm-hmm. do it over email. But it's very, it's very easy to be sucked into this because it looks so legitimate. So the, uh, the company that I'm referring to, the accounting manager sent multiple wires over a two-day period to, uh, to the tune of about a quarter of a million dollars that um, they can't get back, right? So, and, and, and she, you know, she was trying to do her job. She thought she was doing her job. She was responding to the CFO's requests. It seemed legitimate, but because of, again, this goes back to the education. Um, the education of the CFO not to post on Facebook that you're on vacation because then, you know, criminals are out there looking at everything. There's a lot of data out there for them to get. And then, you know, the, the easy thing to do, if you get an email like that, your first response should be pick up the phone, call the person who sent it and say, did you really send this to me before I go wire money out of my company? Wow. And, uh, so how prolific is that kind of activity? I mean, is it a one-time thing or is it something that you're seeing every week? Um, so I've probably received 50 emails from Mike over the past six months that have asked me to initiate a wire. There was one... You actually have done that. You have received... I received them every every week. Mm. Um, and one time, they, they actually sent it to a number of people on the accounting team. Um, and one of the people responded to the email, replied to all, and um, said, I don't think Mike's here. Should, should we go ahead and do this? And I, you know, again, it is somebody who's worked with me for a number of years. And they weren't going to go ahead and initiate anything, but they thought, okay, it, it looks like it's Mike. I'm going to at least respond and say... Um, how do we need to do this? Or, you know, where are you so I can get a hold of you? Uh, and of course, the adversary responded with, hey, just go ahead and send this to this. And I, you know, I immediately shut it off. <laughs> said, we're not going to communicate with them. But that that gave them, you know, I, I can only imagine we're a cybersecurity company. We know what to look for. There's a ton of small and mid-market companies that don't have that same level of sophistication that are, you know, tracking things on paper. Think about construction companies. Think about you know, companies that just don't don't utilize technology or don't follow the trends in technology the same way that we do. Mm. It's um, it's it's probably not a fun fun time for them. Sandy, so what uh, David is really referring to, a very prolific. These are known as phishing attacks. Uh, but the other type of attack that we're seeing is a result of 
insider selling credentials, disgruntled employee, for example, there's a black market for selling credentials. And that makes it very difficult when somebody comes into the network that's a non-phishing attack, that's Mike Potts, that may be into the accounts payable system, redirecting a, um, an AP check. And this is happening in both large and small companies, and they're very hard to detect unless you have intelligence such as some of the technology that we provide that provides behavioral analytics and visibility into what's actually happening at the network layer, because actually more than 50% of the attacks are happening from the inside, whether credentials were compromised or whether a user is doing something that he or she shouldn't be doing on the network, knowingly or unknowingly. Mm. So we talk about this, you know, internet cyber war that's happening. I don't know that I or the listeners actually have a sense of what that really means. Can you tell us, I mean, if you want to use war analogies, that's great. But what are the fronts on the war? Who You said the adversary. I mean, that sounds like, you know, kind of creepy. Like, you know, like, what does that mean? You know, it's like Darth Vader. Like, you know, <laughs> what does that really mean? Who are these people? What are they doing? And like, what is... What are we doing? We being who, you know, the U.S., individual companies, like what is the what are the real dimensions of the so-called war? This war is multidimensional. I mean, we do have attacks from Russia and Korea and China when we look at basically the back net of what's what's happening and IP address correlation uh, to who the users are talking to on the network. Um, trying to gain information, intelligence information at the DOD and Intel level. But uh, cyber is also back to what we were discussing, that adversary, the internal adversary uh, that's gaining information, financial information or personal information to be used at a later date. When you say internal adversary, are these employees? Are they spies, for lack of a better word? Like, who are they? Well, internal, they could be disgruntled employees, or in the case of what had happened with uh, Target, uh, it was an HVOC contractor that was able to pivot in and get into the network and basically set up the tunnel for HVOC. HVAC. HVAC, excuse me. The heating and air conditioning company. Air conditioning Mm -hmm. contractor. So, uh, another thing that you've seen, and I can't remember the specific example, but there have been, you talked about spies, Mm -hmm. there have been, um, and the only one I can remember was a Chinese national who was um, employed, uh, you know, went to school and then became employed at a, at a, I think it was a Fortune 500 company. And then, um, because they had internal credentials, started doing bad things on the network and sending them back to, uh, to China. So I don't think that is as prolific as the disgruntled employee who realizes I have any number of things. I have sales records, or I have customer account records that I can take with me to my next job, or I can go sell because this, this provides a wealth of information to somebody who's trying to beat, um, uh, to beat an account. Another example that I can give you regarding small and mid-sized companies, uh, one of the gentlemen I work with now uh, is from North Carolina, and he, he uh, was reached out to by an old friend of his who ran about a $10 million construction business. And um, this was probably two or three years ago, the gentleman realized that he was starting to lose 60, 70, 80% of the bids that um, he was putting out there, and that was new. He, w- he used to win, you know, 80 to 90% of these bids. What um, uh, the person that I know told him was, you need to look and see if there's anybody potentially getting in front of you with, with your bid, right? So if somebody's stolen your information and is outbidding you because they know what you're going to bid before you get to the customer. Wow. Turned out he helped him do some research, 
And there was a Chinese construction company in North Carolina that was getting in front of him and outbidding him by 10, 15% because he knew they knew what to bid and was causing this guy harm just from a normal business perspective. So, you know, it is, it is, um, you said organized crime, it is very organized. And, um, you know, I kind of mentioned the different levels of the business, uh, the business of this crime and uh, the word adversary, because there are different levels of adversaries. There are organizations that are focused on how I sell this data and what I do with it and how I make money, you know, how I profit from it, as well as all the feet on the street that are just concerned with the, how do I collect the data? Because I know for every data record that I get that has X, Y, or Z in it, I get one, two, three dollars or 10, 20, 30 dollars based on the value of that information. Um, so taking 10,000 records or 500,000 records of uh, social security numbers might be worth X, but getting CEO records, like Mike mentioned, that were healthcare related that might be, be, be able to be used as ransomware could be worth X times, you know, some number. So it's multiple levels of, of adversary. Um, I'm not quite sure what war analogy to use, but they're probably ground troops and there's air troops and there's generals that are coordinating all of, all of this. And that's what makes it a big problem and really hard to, to solve, but also hard to monitor across the globe. I'll add that, uh, the war that we were fighting in the first, uh, the first part of the decade of 2000 to 2010 was largely, uh, um, fighting off malicious attacks, worms to try to bring networks down. But in the latter part of the, uh, the decade, and certainly now, the adversaries realize that there's a lot of financial gain, very difficult to detect. You don't have to throw a brick through a window and have a police, come in, a police officer come apprehend you. You can hide behind multiple different faces, making it very, very difficult, uh, which has changed the landscape completely with what, what it takes to actually guard these networks. And do you put the disgruntled employee in a different category from the other kinds of adversaries? Because to me, it feels like that disgruntled employee is not the same as somebody who, from the outside, who may be fishing to try to get in. And the disgruntled employee may not even know, really, that what they're doing is, is I mean, they probably know it's wrong, but they, they feel justified because, you know, the employer was mean to them or didn't pay them or whatever. Yeah, I think it, it, it would depend on the type of uh, activity. So a disgruntled salesperson who's going to their next job and who takes the records probably doesn't think that what they're doing is that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, That's dis- what I mean. A disgruntled financial employee who does something that creates financial gain for themselves probably has a different level of uh, understanding of how bad what they're doing is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think other employees who may just try to take the network down or, or do something disruptive, but not necessarily for personal financial gain, uh, they probably don't think that it's that big of a deal that they've disrupted the network for four hours and caused lack of productivity for their for the other employees. Or if they've taken the network down for 30 minutes and it's caused a customer disruption, oh, it's not that big of a deal. It'll, the network will be back up. But that does cause financial pro- losses, right? Whether it's productivity or, or actual customer losses. Uh, but I wouldn't put those even those three activities in the same category as as the organized crime, if you will, or the people who who are actively trying to go take data for malicious purposes, because they're, they're, they really are different. So what, do, what do people do? What do, what does the CEO of a company do about this? Well, it, uh, it was very difficult for the CEO, uh, earlier on because, uh, he or she didn't really understand the nature of, of, of these attacks. We use a lot of technical jargon and uh, a lot of CEOs aren't comfortable with it. And for that matter, the employees in, 
security operations center or incident response centers aren't that comfortable with talking to uh, the CEOs and the board. But, but do you it, think that it's a CEO level problem? It, it certainly is. And it is beginning to change. Boardrooms are actually focused uh, around uh, initiating activities for full-fledged incident response campaigns when a breach does occur versus being, um, uh, being notified afterwards. They're, they are now t- taking an active role not across the board yet, but we're seeing an increasing uh, uh, level of awareness where CEOs and boards are getting involved and really putting full-fledged response plans together and trying to understand the, the state of the network. And, and obviously, we have all types of, of uh, policies, if you will, and, and legislation such as HIPAA legislation, SOX, Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, and a number of other emerging standards, the PCI standard, uh, the payment card industry standard. Uh, all of these companies at the board level need to adhere to those standards. So it is creating a level of awareness that we really do need to understand what's happening. And and we're starting to see this being broken down into more English bite-sized languages, uh, language so that that the the boards, uh, uh, the CEO and the board of directors can further understand what is actually occurring and what needs to be done. Yeah, I would I would add to that. It it only takes seeing one of your peers on the news or reading about them in the paper so many times before as a CEO or C-level executive, you're going to start asking the question, are we secure? And, um, it, 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 you know, it's an easy question to ask. And then as Mike mentioned, when you try to get into, well, yeah, we have this fence up and we have this camera up and we have these things up, you may get lost a little bit. But the the, the question of are we secure is definitely a C-level and board level question right now. Um, so much so that that the risk management groups at, at slightly larger co- uh, corporations now incorporate uh, cyber risk or cybersecurity as one of the main tenets of what they're talking about. And then also uh, in smaller companies, you see this being part of the audit committee charter. So the audit committee who's looking at financial risk and other business risk has added this this as one of their their uh, their tenets because at the end of the day, as we talked about, if one of these breaches occurs, it becomes a financial or corporate risk um, ultimately. Hmm. So let's start with the premise. You know, most of my, my clients are in this, in this, uh, this, uh, segment of the market. They're not secure. So let's just start off with that assumption, right? They, they're really busy trying to sell their next, next big deal or keep their employees happy or, you know, deal with the market. Uh, so security is not necessarily top of mind unless something, there's been a catastrophic event, like you just mentioned. What what are some tactical like one two three things that somebody listening to this show could steps that they could take to kind of move themselves a little bit further down the pike to being secure, especially keeping in mind that most of these companies don't have a budget for it. Well, you hit a very interesting topic, um, and one of the challenges is that not only is uh, is it a a challenge to keep your network secure, but there, there's a lack of, uh, of uh, labor resources, if you will. In the state of Georgia, for example, there are 5,000 open tech jobs. Many of those are security related. There aren't enough people to fill these opportunities. The Fortune 500, the Global 1000 are probably better equipped to make this a part of the, their practice and their cadence for what David mentioned earlier. But as we go downstream, we're seeing the emergence of uh, managed service providers that uh, can outsource the security operations of a smaller company or a mid-sized company. And this is, in fact, what uh, the cloud uh, has to offer for 
a number of different companies that don't have the, the scale individually to to fight off these attacks. I mean, here locally, a company called SecureWorks that you probably know of that was acquired by Dell is uh, likely in the process of spinning off and going public. That's what they that's what they do. Uh, and Cisco as a company is also focused on that as we further swim down uh, stream in the market to provide cloud hybrid on-prem, off-prem type solutions to help those companies. No, I, w- I was just going to comment about the MSSP business as well. Uh, and one of the things that I think the the companies in your segment, the demographic yeah. that you ca- talk about, can do at a, at a to just at least at the first stage is to go get an assessment, right? Getting a security assessment. There's a number of qualified security professionals, uh, both locally, obviously nationally, globally, that can um, at a minimum provide them with a roadmap of here's where your biggest weaknesses are things you should address first, things that will will be uh, most cost effective uh, or provide the most bang for the buck for your, as you start to build your defenses and give you an idea of where you're weak, where you're, you know, where you might not need to focus because everybody needs to focus somewhere, right? Even at, even at Lancope as a cybersecurity company, we went through the assessment process often and realized that there were weaknesses that we needed to, you know, holes we needed to fill. Um, so I think that that is a great first step. And then if you don't feel like you have the talent or the capability, you know, outsourcing your network to um, uh, a managed uh, service provider and then maybe outsourcing security to a managed security service provider is a is a good next step. And just to get even more simplistic, these phishing attacks, you know, what are some ways that uh, companies can protect themselves from these things like don't ever send money without asking me first. You know? <laughs> that's, that's an easy one, right? You don't don't ever don't ever wire or, or write a check or do anything with uh, with money that you wouldn't have done ten years ago, right? Normally, you have a piece of paper that used to be three three signatures before you could actually release a check or do a wire. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with running around internally to go make sure you you've checked those boxes if something seems suspicious or just as normal course of practice. Um, as far as phishing information for, you know, credentials, which is another big thing. Some, somebody gets an email from their IT administrator saying, hey, I need your login for this other system. Um, and it, it's not coming from the IT administrator. You've just given them not only your password to that system at the business, but probably one of your passwords to your bank accounts. Because most people <laughs> don't do a good job of keeping multiple pa- passwords for every, every um, uh, website and account that they have. Does anybody... So, do you do you have a different password no. for every account? I mean, no. for real, like but, you know. But I know people people that that we work with in the industry um, will use password vaults and have a different password for every every account that they have, and they keep the password vault so that they can uh, not have to remember. They remember one password, which is the key to the vault, and then they have all the individual passwords stored there. Is that actually? I mean, as a side note, is that actually more secure? Because it feels to me like if they get the password to the vault, then they have everything. They do, but you make that one password something that that would be really hard for them to crack. And um, most people don't want, most of the criminals don't want to work hard, right? It's, just, it's like uh, smashing grabs. If, you're, if your laptop bag's in the trunk, somebody's not going to try to break into your trunk to see if there's a laptop in there. But if you left your laptop bag on the passenger seat or in the back seat, guess what's going to happen? They're going to put their elbow through the window, take your bag, and they're gone. So if you make, it, if you make your passwords easy, um, that's one problem. But if you, make this, if you have a password vault, and you make the one password to get into the vault something that, you know, it's a sentence that only you would remember um, or, you know, a sequence that only you would remember, they're not going to really try that hard because, quite frankly, what most of us have to give a criminal is not worth that effort. Um, in some instances, obviously, you talk about big companies or, you know, wealthy individuals, there's a different story there. But but I think um, it, it's, it's, secure, it's more secure to do that than it is to have your, 
your child's name or your dog's name or your you know birthday or anniversary as one of your passwords on your bank account. Or one, two, three, four, five, six, which is the most commonly used password. Are you and, serious? And is what Dave is what David mentioned. That's what the adversaries have. They don't want to work hard. They'll go on to the next one if they can't uh, crack the the first one and. Eventually, they're going to get into the one, two, three, four, five, six, or the A, B, C, D, E, F, G. But the single biggest thing that companies can do to avoid uh, phishing attacks, for example, is education and really looking at the URL, the address to make sure that it's authenticated and you know exactly who it's coming from before you click onto that. So instead of the hair trigger and hitting the, uh, the enter button, a lot of it's just education on really what to look for on those types of attacks. And we're seeing more of that occur. There are there are companies across the board that are making that a part of new employee orientation as the, as the cadence of onboarding new employees. So let's turn the conversation a little bit to your working relationship. I know that you were recently, or Landcope was recently acquired by Cisco, and that um, you've worked together through that transition. And I would love to just hear a little bit about that acquisition, how you've worked together. Um, one of the things that, we discuss and I think is important is that, you know, no CEO, no company succeeds through one individual. And I would love to know how you've worked together to make Lancopa success over the years. Well, I'll answer first and then David can chime in. Uh, I've been with the company now for six years. I started uh, actually about six years ago to this day. Wow. Congrats. Thank you. And uh, David has been with the company for 14 years. He, in addition to us, our COO has also served as our CFO. And uh, as I really investigated the company to really try to understand what was occurring and, and, and the specific shape that it was in in 2010, um, I quickly realized that uh, David was going to be my confidant, and we developed a very transparent relationship and uh, joined at the hip together. And uh, probably uh, on a 7 by 24 basis, uh, spoke to him. <laughs> I don't know how many conversations we had over the past uh, six years, but we're always available to one another. But uh, also I realized that uh, nobody does this alone in this industry. If you look at uh, Hewlett-Packard, Hewlett had Packard. Uh, if you look at uh, uh, Apple, Jobs had Wozniak, and, and Microsoft Gates had Balmer. And uh, in my case, uh, we Potts had Koshera, and Koshera had Potts as we uh, developed this relationship. And uh, as this opportunity began to open up and we developed some of these partnerships that I mentioned, uh, such as Cisco, David was very key in operationalizing these relationships to uh, make certain that we had absolute success. And we absolutely did uh, relative to the outcome. But um, there really wasn't anything uh, day-to-day basis that I didn't share with David. Uh, He was with me in all the board meetings looked at really as a board member for his, uh, his uh, input and uh, support of me and the business. So I'm proud to call him my friend um, as well as my business partner. Well, that was nice. <laughs> I'm proud to call you my friend too, Mike. You know, Mike, Mike hit it. It, it, it definitely is a partnership. And uh, I've worked over the 14 years at Landcope. I had the opportunity to work with two fantastic CEOs. Uh, the first one retired when Mike joined, right before Mike joined in 2010. And in both of those instances, um, I had the the um, uh, the opportunity to spread my wings and do a lot, uh, as evidenced by my title. As Mike said, I started as CFO. I didn't didn't take long before I started doing a lot more. Um, but at a company of fifteen people, when I joined, um, there's a lot to do and a lot of people, you know, very few people to do it. So you do whatever you can. But 
but the opportunity to work with uh, with two fine gentlemen that that um, became partners with me, not just in work, uh, not just as the as the job grew, as the role grew, as the company grew, but also in life. And talk, you know, having people that you can talk to, you feel comfortable enough and trust enough that you can talk to about things that might not be related to the office, and uh, and get advice and and hear their stories and understand whether it was a uh, um, you know an occurrence uh, occupational thing from the past for them or a family thing. You you have somebody you can talk to and trust. Uh, that's that's fantastic. And then the and then you take that to the the fight to succeed in business. And obviously, you're going to be locked arm in arm to do whatever you can to be successful. And you, you know, you talked about, or you asked about the, the process of the acquisition. And, and that's a great example of, of Mike and I um, working, you know, 18 months ago, two years ago to start talking to the board and talking to the investors about our opportunities to grow the business and the, to grow the business in any multitude of ways, right? Through investment, going public, getting acquired, whatever that path may be. We went lockstep to the board and started talking about what the what the outcomes could look like. Uh, they took some, you know, some convincing as we started talking through it. You know, twenty four months, eighteen months, and then you get to a point where Mike and I say, "No, this is really what we need to do," and we're aligned and united on this. Um, and the board finally has to has to kind of agree and say, "Okay, these guys really believe in this, and we believe in them, so they're going to do it for us." And then you go through the process of actually. Uh, executing on that strategy, and there's no doubt that the the CEO and CFO, uh, or CEO and COO, CFO, are going to be incredibly aligned as you go through the process of talking to partners, talking to fin- uh, investors, and figuring out what your outcome is going to look like. Hmm. Were you part of the team that chose and found Mike? Uh, I was. Uh, our investors sourced Mike, and then I was part of the team that that uh, vetted him, if you will, um, as he vetted us. Um, and I was also part of the team that found the first CEO back in 2002 as well. Mm. And so what were you looking for? Cause it seems like you did a pretty good job of finding. So, <laughs> so we were at a stage, yes. we were at a stage in 2010 where we had come through, you know, we had, we had decent growth as a small startup from 2002 when I joined to 2008, 2008, the wheels came off the economy and, uh, all of a sudden Lanco was in a position of trying to figure out how it made it through the next 12 months. I thought technology did pretty well in the, the Great Recession. Yeah, uh, Technology didn't fare as bad as others, but uh, the companies around us, our competitors, all got acquired or fell off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a tough time for for the enterprises that were buying our technology. So as a result, they were making decisions on which vendors they were going to keep and which vendors they weren't. And we were fortunate that we focused pretty heavily on our customer base to make sure we stayed with them, got through the got through the time, but it wasn't an easy time for us, you know, with bank debt and with some other things, we had to make some really hard decisions on how to, how to refocus the business. We had grown internationally. We had to pull back a little bit. And so we got to coming out of 2009 into 2010 and what the company really needed at that point when the, when the first CEO retired was somebody who had been there and done that. And Mike had come from uh, recently uh, having sold the company called Air Defense here in town to Motorola and gone through a very similar uh, circumstance where the company had grown a little too fast, they needed to pull back a little bit, recalibrate, find a right partner, and then build the company. And that's exactly what we needed. So it, it was you know, very synergistic that, that he was available, uh, that we had some friends that knew him, and that his skill set really fit where we were at, in, in 2010 and where we wanted to go. And then what about the the process of kind of meeting him and getting him into the company and making sure that it all worked and everybody was all warm and fuzzy, fuzzy, wuzzy, wuzzy. Cause that doesn't always go that way. It, it doesn't. And uh, a lot of this has to do with Mike and Mike's personality. 
Um, you know, everybody's a little uh, nervous when you make a transition at, at the top, uh, both executives as well as uh, employees. We did a really good job of communicating both with the former CEO um, and making sure everybody was aware uh, that this was a good move. And then when Mike came in, one of the first things that Mike did was had an all-hands meeting where um, he not only introduced himself and talked about what he's about, and you know, Mike will say moral, legal, and ethical over and over again because those are the three core principles that he tries to operate a business by, but he also shared data with them. So he shared with the employees where we were. So through the first quarter of 2010, this is where the business is. This is where it was in 2007, 8, 9, and 10, and this is where we want to take it, and we want you to be part of it. Um, some of that data, uh, the rank and file employees hadn't seen before. And they, I think, uh, the responses that I got from a lot of, uh, tenured employees was, it was great to see that and feel like we're part of this and to understand what you've done, what you've been, you know, how, how we saved the business in 2008 and 2009 and where we want to go in 2010. And I want to be part of it. And, uh, to Mike's credit, you know, he got everybody on board rather quickly. Um, and then obviously got everybody on board at the executive level rather quickly, brought us together to get us to. I used to always say we're we're all in a boat and we all have an, an oar and we're all rowing. Uh, I'm not sure if we're rowing in the same direction or at the same pace, but we're all we're all trying. And what Mike did was bring us into the same boat and then got us to start rowing in the same direction and then started get, you know got us rowing at the same speed and then we really started executing. I will add this, uh, you know, having David behind me and his support, I think, uh, help expedite the introduction to the company. Our beehive was only about 47 or 50 employees back then, so it was easy to get around to everyone. As a matter of fact, I spent two days and got to know each and every one of the employees and their profiles, trying to understand, exactly, understand at the time exactly where they were, what they wanted to do, and also have always had a basic philosophy, having done this for 25 years, uh, that most people want to do the right thing. They just want to understand how it relates their unit of work to what other work streams are going on. And we spent a lot of time that first year really bringing everybody together and synthesizing the group, the management team. In addition to David, we're fortunate enough to have some very strong leaders. Maybe not all of them stayed, but uh, a good portion of them did, made that transition. So it was a wonderful experience with David and with the, the entire team. How did you develop your philosophy on what to do? Like, how did you know what to do when you came in? I was fortunate enough to have a, a great experience with a company called MSA. I worked for one of the great tech titans, uh, titans here in Atlanta, John Imlay, and uh, his impression on me and his mentoring that went far beyond MSA was really treatment of the people. And um, his, his mantra was, people are the key. In the high-tech industry, when you think about it, we really don't manufacture anything except aside from IP. We're not building necessarily machines or or uh, devices, if you will, although our products may run on an appliance, it's really the IP and it's the people that, uh, that bring that uh, to life and, and really how you work with folks to get the most out of them and understand what they really want to do and make sure that you're aligned uh, is something I learned uh, spending seven, eight years at MSA and then through some other companies that I've had the great uh, experience of, of serving with, with uh, companies like Jakarta and Air Defense. Uh, uh, that played over and over, and uh, and that became a very successful profile, and I've stuck to it. And so, what's what's next as you think about um, where you are now? You're instead of go, you know being this little thing that you both can run, you're now inside of this bigger company, and there are new people and new relationships that you have to build. And how how are you thinking about that? 
the beauty of our relationship with Cisco is it started uh, over three years ago as a business partner selling their product, selling them selling our product on the global price list and the integration with their field, working together with their engineering teams and their product teams began uh, several years ago versus a company that may have just been acquired that didn't have a relationship with Cisco. So fortunately, we were able to uh, expedite a lot of the initial integration opportunities and you know, henceforth, my job right now, given the fact that all of my team members have folded into Cisco, working for their respective uh, uh, business lines, has uh, really been now focusing on that of integration. But we're a 325, 340-employee-based uh, company, um, largely here in Atlanta, uh, amidst a 70,000-employee organization. So there are a few more policies and procedures. It's a little bit more difficult to get a PO approved and walking down the my office or David's office, but we're working through some of those. And I would say that uh, we're off to a lightning start versus if we've just started flat-footed and didn't have a relationship with Cisco. But David's got a key role in this as well, taking a significant part of our organization focused around customer success and further permeating that within Cisco. Yeah, that's a, a great segue. So Mike mentioned the partnership, and um, I led the partnership for the last three years. And over that time, we did build a an enormous number of relationships across product management, engineering, sales, executives, and that's really made the transition uh, into the company um, uh, much smoother. Um, it's not perfect, right? As you go from, as Mike mentioned, from being 300 to 70,000 and, and dealing with new travel systems and policies and and um, and trying to figure out which way is up and where your benefits go. And, and I call it uh, learning how to speak Cisco. You know, you, you, you basically have to learn a new language and you learn a new job. Uh, but fortunately, we have good, uh, good, trusted folks on the other side that that care about us based on the relationships that we build, and they're there to help us along the way. Um, but the customer success initiative is one that that we fostered about 18 months ago, and it's it's I won't get into great details, but it's really a combination of support, and learning and development, and services, and real customer management that a lot of businesses that are in the uh, the SaaS market uh, employ today because they their customers can can uh, can swap vendors pretty quickly because they don't have a big investment in hardware and infrastructure. Mm -hmm. So they need to make sure their customers are successful and really based on this customer having a, a great outcome with your solution. So we are a software company delivered on a hardware appliance and, we, and we're not a SaaS business today, but we decided we were going to try that technique and really try to make sure our customers who are large Fortune 500, Global 1000, large government, um, healthcare, higher education customers, make sure they were having the right sort of outcomes with our solutions. So we invested in this area and really saw a tremendous amount of success. Customers were coming to us and saying, I don't get this, this level of treatment from any other vendor. Um, as a result of this, I want to do more business with you. And, and we continued that investment. Well, this is something that's new to Cisco. Cisco is largely a hardware company transitioning to a software business, which is great. But as part of that, this, this concept of customer success is one that is, that is newer to them. And they've asked us and, and chartered me with, how do you bring customer success to the rest of the security portfolio? And how does Cisco bring customer success to its entire portfolio? Uh, they're doing it obviously with others as well, but that is one of my primary charters right now is to figure out how we take what we've been successful with as the 300 person company and apply it first to the $2 billion security business and then apply it to the $45 billion beast. Let me add one other thing I think is the most important aspect of bringing these two companies together. We talked about the culture, and David mentioned uh, morally, legally, and ethically. We want to win, and we want to win badly, uh, aspiring to being moral, legal, and ethical in our business practices. That's almost identical to Cisco from uh, 
Chuck Robbins, uh, the current CEO, Ch- uh, John Chambers, the chairman, um, then also David Geckler, who heads the security business unit. That permeates throughout the company, and that's really what our company is about relative to the People Initiative as being the key assets in our business and wanting to win. And uh, we're very well aligned, which has made the, uh, the integration uh, a bit easier than it would have been if we had two different cultures. Wow. So other than your customer success initiative, is there anything um, that's happening in your business or practice that you think middle market CEOs would love to know about? I think it's it's part of, it's kind of a subset of the customer success initiative. But one of the things that that we found very valuable to us, and I'm learning um, is a little more difficult when you start to get to a larger company, is the is really the concept of data analytics, um, understanding your customer. And uh, it sounds easy when I say it. I think it, it's one of those things that, well, yeah, it just makes sense. I need to understand who my customer is. But but the the uh, investment that that we made in some and some folks who focused on systems and the integration of certain systems to make sure that from the creation of a lead from our marketing organization or from a trade show or an event that we might have gone to to um, following that lead all the way through to them being a customer and understanding how they use the product um, is a big deal and it really provides you a ton of insight in knowing how to better sell to and service a customer as well as how what the good the bad and the ugly of how a certain uh, a certain um, customer contact uh, worked out that you can apply to the next one and to the next one and to the next one and learn from each of these and again it sounds pretty basic but it's not something that a lot of folks i don't think i don't think they consider it from the start because you've got disjointed systems and you're really trying to, you know, if you're an early stage or, you know, small to mid-sized company, you're trying to uh, get as many leads as you can. And then you're trying to follow up on those leads. You don't necessarily care about what happens with the ones that don't go too far, but you should. Uh, And then they get to the next stage of your pipeline and you, and you've, and you've got to work on them a little bit differently. And some of them fall off. And are you really tracking why they fell off? And do you understand if they were good or bad or, or, uh, and then you're like, yeah, I got a customer. Right. And then I got a customer (laughs) and now they're calling for support. Um, and now I hope I can sell them something again in the future. Well, there's a whole lot of steps along the way there that, that can provide a wealth of information about, am I selling to the right person? I may have sold to the customer, but if I find out 12 months later that they're not renewing their maintenance and support, um, and they're not using the product or finding value out of it, is it because my product isn't providing value or is it because maybe they weren't the right customer? And when you start putting those pieces together, uh, how they were sold to? Was it a long sales cycle? Was it a quick sales cycle? Was it at the end of the year they had some budget and they threw some money out there to try a new technology? All of those different pieces of data provide you a wealth of information on how to grow your business and how to how to manage your customer base. Um, you know, when customers call in for support, I mean, you can pull up their record and immediately see have they taken training, and if they haven't, this may be why they're asking me these basic questions about how to use the product. Um, and maybe I should encourage them to take training. Maybe we should create some different vehicles for them to be educated on the product that don't require, you know, self-learning where you don't have to go pay to get trained, but you're actually going to get these learning bites, if you will. All this comes from the data that you have based on how a customer behaves from lead to, you know, experienced customer. I think in summary, it's really about managing outcomes. Uh, Our industry is not uh, that different than other industries, whether you're selling a building management system or an enterprise resource planning system, there's a lot of competition. Everyone seems to say the same thing. In our case, there are 800 folks at RSA, the large security conference in San Francisco, that were all saying the same thing. And people are scratching their head, what's different about them? Uh, the, really, the, the key ingredient is that customer success aspect and controlling outcomes. And for those um, CEOs listening in, regardless of the industry that you're 
in, you've got uh, challenges, you've got uh, competition, but those that can manage those outcomes most successfully are the ones that are going to garner the larger market share. Great. Thank you so much for a wonderful show. I really appreciate having you both today. Thank you. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Anona Enterprises, where strategy is your access to money and performance. Learn more at anonaenterprises.com.